You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to the first episode of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. Um, before we get stuck into this first show, I just want to take a few minutes to introduce myself and introduce the show. So it's going to be a monthly show coming out at the middle of every month. Uh, it's going to be approximately an hour-long panel discussion with myself and a few other you know, people who enjoy photography, basically. And we're going to talk each month about a topic that is related to the art and craft of photography. And while inevitably we have to mention the fact that you take photographs using equipment of some sort, what I really don't want this to become is a podcast about gear, about which which brand of lens is better than which other brand of lens, which software is better than which other software, whether you should be a Nikon shooter or a Canon shooter. I really, really, really have no interest in going down that road. I want this to be about the art and craft of making beautiful images. Now, I have a few topics picked out for the first few shows, but I'm hoping that after that, that the community will start to come up with ideas and topics and that the whole thing sort of grow organically. And we just end up having interesting conversations about making nice images. Um, I guess I should also introduce myself. Um, you may or may not have known me from other podcasts, but uh, my name is Bart Bouchotts. Uh, by day, I'm a Linux sysadmin. And whenever I get a chance, I take my camera out and I go take pictures. Um, I guess my favourite subjects, they vary a bit, but um, I like to take photographs of the beautiful place I live, a little town, a little village even, called Maynooth in Kildare, sort of near Dublin in Ireland, and I think it's very pretty here. It's not, you know, spectacular tourist pretty, but I think it's beautiful in its own way. Uh, I also have a thing for trains. I've always loved trains, and they feature in a lot of my photographs, as do flora and fauna, particularly flowers and butterflies. And also, I love taking my camera out at night and shooting skyscapes, starscapes, really, um, and, you know, with often with nice historic buildings as foregrounds with beautiful stars as backgrounds, that kind of thing. So I guess that gives you some idea of who I am. Um, now, we're about, I'm about to play the first episode, which is recorded on Skype, and I need to apologise. I'm going to do my best to clean it up and post, but I'm afraid the... Uh, Skype gods were not entirely kind, and uh, my channel, ironically, of the audio isn't great. Um, so I do apologise if the audio quality isn't quite what it should be, and I hope that doesn't happen again. Joining me this month for our first, I guess our inaugural voyage on this lovely ship podcast, or uh, mixed metaphors, but anyway. Uh, joining me we have three photographers whom I know quite well and who I think are really smart guys and we're hopefully going to be interesting. So, uh, in no particular order, uh, we have uh, Mark uh, Pauly joining us uh, from Twin Lakes Images, and you should go over there, twinlakesimages.com, and check out his fantastic photography, or you'll find them as Switcher Mark on Twitter and Flickr. Hi, Mark. Hello, Bart. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for accepting the invite. <laughs> Very good. Uh, now, you're on the west coast of America today. Yeah, uh, I'm on the west coast of America pretty much all the time. I live in the Seattle area, and I'm right now down in Palm Springs for a work conference. Okay, I'm sitting near Dublin in Ireland, so I'm quite a way away from you. And then a long, long way away across a whole different ocean, we have Alistair Jenks joining us the whole way from New Zealand. Good evening, Bart. Welcome aboard. Oh, good, Thank oh. you. Are, you. are you like time travel? Is this like tomorrow for you? 
Yes, it is. It's 9 a.m. on Saturday. What's the weather like? <laughs> pretty good, but I don't think that's what you're getting. No, neither do I, unfortunately. <laughs> it's bloody cold up here. And winter, or is it summer for you guys? Well, kind of. And then, well, I guess on the other side of the continent of America, we also have uh, Kenny Lee joining us from the sort of greater New Yorkish area. Yeah, on the Jersey Shore, Bart. I don't know my geography very well. <laughs> That's not far from New York, is it? Or is it? No, no, we're about uh, actually 11 miles from New York City. Oh, that's pretty close. You're closer to New York than I am to Dublin. Yeah. Well, uh, it's it's a light it's light years away in other in other ways. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> right. So for this first show, I I really, really, really don't want this to become a podcast about tech. I mean, there's nothing wrong with talking about tech, but I think that niche is covered. So what I want to be sure to do with our monthly discussions here is to talk about, well, I guess the way I described it is the art and craft of photography. So we want to be completely brand neutral in every possible way, and where possible, like equipment neutral. So I figured to kick us off, I'd pick a really neutral topic, and it's composition, because I would argue that it doesn't matter whether you're using a little pinhole camera you made yourself, or if you spent $10,000 on the most fabulous camera in the world... Either way, if you compose badly, your photos will be rubbish. And if you compose well, you'll make interesting photographs people like, regardless of where on that spectrum you fall. And I also think it's probably the easiest thing, you know, if, if you, you're fed up with taking snapshots and you want to start taking photos, I think it's all about compositions for the largest amount, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that, Bart. Um, a great camera does not make a great photographer, is, is what's been said, and I totally agree with that. Uh, because I've found that no matter how much I've upgraded my camera, I still take the same photos. <laughs> but just nicer buttons. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's more fun perhaps with, with different buttons and capabilities on the camera. But you can still take a photo, get home, take a look at it and think, it's not right, it's still a snapshot. Why is it a snapshot? And that's something I'm still trying to figure out the answer to in many respects. Well, hopefully we can elaborate on that a little today. So... I get, it's almost like the elephant in the room, but there's this thing called the rule of thirds. And I, I don't think there's a photo book in the world that doesn't start there. And a lot of our cameras even can put this rule of thirds grid over your photo so you can compose your photos in the rule of thirds right in camera. Uh, so I guess we should probably say that what it is is you imagine your photo, and it doesn't actually matter whether it's a square photo or you know, a three by four or six by whatever. You know, it doesn't matter what shape. You, you take a line one third of the way down, one third of the way up, draw it across, one third of the way in from the left, one third of the way in from the right, draw it down, and you get an X's and O's grid. And the idea is that you want to have horizontal things along the horizontal lines, vertical things along the vertical lines, and points of interest where the lines cross. That's the rule of thirds, and I use that very loosely. So, well, people agree with me that the rule of thirds isn't a rule, it's a guideline? Absolutely. It's... Uh... I kind of start there uh, when I'm when I'm composing an image. I'll start thinking about it in terms of the rule of thirds, and then maybe move the subject around in a way that utilizes it or breaks it in a way that's effective. But it's certainly a good starting point. It's a good way for me to uh, imagine what I'm looking at and composing because it gives me gives me sort of the grid or the outline but then work from there outward to figure out what's going to be a good composition for that image 
Yeah, that, that's exactly what I do, Mark. It's, as you say, a start point. You, you sort of line everything up in a, in a technical fashion and then you sort of look at the outside of the frame and think, oh, I've just cut that thing off there, so I'll just move it a little bit. And Sometimes it doesn't work at all and you need to completely recompose, but I do... I don't have um, rule of thirds lines in my viewfinder uh, of my main camera, so I kind of have to imagine it, and and maybe that helps me not be anal about the rules. But I I do admit to using a grid when I'm uh, doing my post processing and uh, often lining things up precisely with those points on the grid. <laughs> Alistair, you know Pixel I think that's, pre- that, that's precisely how I feel it, and when I think it should be done. I, I ignore that rule, to be honest with you, because uh, I find that if I use that rule when I shoot, all my all my images begin to look alike or have similar characteristics. And I uh, I think, you know, you can play with that stuff in post uh, uh, and be relatively successful with it. But I'd rather I'd rather compose an image as as the scene is grabbing me rather than make it try to fit a rule. I, I yeah, suppose- I- one value of the quote-unquote, well, I'm going to call it the guideline of thirds because I really don't want people thinking it's a rule because it just so isn't. But I think everyone's default impulse is to put the subject in the middle. And if the rule of thirds achieves nothing else, at least it should encourage you to nudge it left, right, up, or down. Which, if you do nothing else, that's actually likely to make your photos quite a bit better. Just get the subject out of that middle bit. Yeah, but it also depends on the subject. Yeah, I mean, it, it's that's another reason that's not a rule. Is you know, if you're taking a photo of a house, hmm. you probably don't want to put the house sort of down in one corner if it, if the photo was <laughs> of the house. Yes. But if you're taking a photo of a house on a section, then you would. So or, it, it it's very much situational. You see, if I were, I mean, I'm thinking very stereotypical houses now, obviously, because we're talking in the abstract, but. You could have like the mailbox be in the in the lower rule of thirds crossing point. Oh sure, sure. You know, so there are these tweaks or, or features of the house, I suppose. Well, or does the mailbox then become the subject? <laughs> I guess it depends how close you got to the mailbox. <laughs> if it takes up two thirds of your screen, I guess it is the subject. Um, so was one other. Do you? I think people have a tendency to put the horizon in the middle of their photos. That's one I always avoid now, almost without exception. Uh, and, and that's where I will use the, the rule of thirds and then adjust, as Mark put it, um, because I often find that you know, I, when I walk to work, I, um, I have my iPhone in my pocket and very occasionally I take my, my big camera and just looking out across uh, the harbour where I walk is, is quite picturesque and sometimes the sky will just you know, put on a nice little show for me. And the number of times I can pose, uh, especially with my iPhone, which does have the grid on it, I will line up that line on the horizon and then think, there's too much sky. I mean, the water looks really nice. And then you line it up the other way and it's, there's too much water or there's rocks in the foreground that I don't want. Yeah. So there is anywhere but the middle is good. You're going to come home with level shots. Yes. Um, step up for, I mean, I am terrible. I, maybe I'm lopsided, but my shots all lean to the left. And you can make jokes for that if you like. And, and that's something I, I hate is, is shots where, and it, it may actually be straight, but there may be something, uh, I find photos of a shoreline to be especially difficult because sometimes, especially if it's distant, the shoreline actually comes towards you slightly. So it should technically be sloped in the photo, but there's something about the 
the scene that makes it look crooked and there's my eyes just my or my brain rather just can't cope with that and and in some cases where I've taken a shot like that I I just can't I just throw that shot away because I can't get it to where it's uh, actually physically straight and looks logically straight to me well, if you have a bit of barrel distortion or something, you're actually fighting a completely losing battle trying to get your horizon to lie along a line. Because when you get the left-right, the right will be wrong. And when you get the right-right, the left will be wrong. Well, if you've got lots of barrel distortion, that's good because you can use that to effect. But when you've got a little bit and you don't quite realize it, um, that that becomes a problem as well. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to ask a quick question, if I may. Uh, mm. how, how many of the panel, other than myself, are, are using Lightroom? I do. Okay, that's fifty. That's, well, I think it's fifty-fifty. Yeah, I, 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 I used to use it, and I now use Aperture. Oh, that's good. That's a complete accident, but that's a nice fifty-fifty. So, and Alistair, I used to use Aperture, but now I use Lightroom. So we <laughs> we just we we cancelled each other out. That's wonderful symmetry. <laughs> well, and let the, let the marketing battle unfold. But the reason I asked the the reason I asked the question was because in the new version that just came out, they they. They have some tremendous automatic um, compensation now uh, for the lens that really address uh, address that in a, in a spectacular way, in, in my opinion. Yeah, and they've, they've profiled the lenses so that it uses the XF. It's just, oh, yeah, you have that 10-millimeter lens. Yeah, that pin cushion's like mad. Boop, gone. Exactly. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very happy with, uh, with that feature. I think it, uh, it simplifies uh, editing a, a whole lot. Am, am I also correct that as well as doing the lens correction, which is just, it's just caused by the laws of physics and the way glass isn't perfect. But there's, you know, there's also the other effect that if you're tilting up, buildings appear to get narrower at the top than the bottom, and if you're tilting down, the opposite happens. Is, do you also have the perspective correction for free now as part of Lightroom? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah it, it'll do auto-leveling, and it'll also uh, do the correction for the building, for lines like buildings and so forth. It's... Uh, Hang on, you say auto. Is it like looking for what should be a straight line and doing something intelligent? Yeah, uh, and it and it does a pretty good job of it. You have manual controls if if it goes too far or you think it's if you think it's reading the image incorrectly. But you can try first by doing an auto auto level and an auto adjust of the. Uh, so you set verticals. I get my vertical and horizontal mixed up. But anyway, it'll it'll do that automatically, and a lot of times it's. Uh, does a really good job of it. Sometimes it it overcompensates or it uh, misinterprets what it's looking at, but you can and you can dial it back on manual mode. But uh, it's it works really really well. I'm, I'm that in fact uh, the lens correction was one of the main reasons I switched over to to Lightroom. So oh, that's <laughs> interesting because I don't actually, well, for the most part, I can't remember ever doing correction for distortion or perspective do you own a wide angle lens not terribly wide no but yeah. um, I, I never did a single bit of correction either and then i bought a 10 millimeter lens and then i went and bought pt lens as a plug-in for aperture to let me do lens correction yeah <laughs> because at 10 millimeters like the keystoning on buildings becomes cartoonish and very off-putting like it makes you feel like you're falling over it's, it's, it's quite extreme uh-huh. yeah, my, my, I'm, just, I'm sorry go ahead alistair Oh, sorry. I was, I was just wondering, you know, if, if you're talking about buildings and perspective, if you stood, um, I don't know, six feet from the bottom of the Eiffel Tower and, and took a shot up the Eiffel Tower with a 10 millimeter lens, would you want to correct that? Or is that the whole point? No, in that case, you've just made it into a feature. 
Sometimes it's a book. <laughs> which, which I think comes back, comes back to that horizon um, point that I made earlier, totally, is that yeah. if, if it's off just a little, then you want to fix it to make it perfect. But if it's off a lot, you tend to make that a feature. Actually, that's a really good point that segues into something that, that often occurs to me. It doesn't actually matter if your photograph is like really off-level, as long as it doesn't look accidental. Like, so a little bit off is bad, perfect is good, way off is artistic. It's this magic round the between where it looks like it just didn't care. Yeah. Anyway, the other something that occurs to me here, we haven't said it explicitly, but I get the feeling from everyone here that none of us are in any way averse to cropping in post to perfect our composition. Oh, heck no. <laughs> I, I rely on it. <laughs> I'd shudder to think what my images would look like without it. Well, yeah, and we have so many megapixels, even on our phone cameras these days, that it seems to me you can't add pixels afterwards, really. I mean, you can sort of kind of do it with intelligent fill and stuff these days, but not the same. Where it's very easy to take them out. So I'd rather shoot a little bit too wide. In fact, I'd rather do it significantly too wide than a little bit too narrow. Because one's easy to fix and the other is a real problem. Well, what I find there is that, you know, if I'm taking a picture of a, of a the scenery like the harbour in the morning then I'll compose the shot and, and take it and go back and you know maybe do a little bit of a crop just to, to get some balance in there. But uh, as anyone who knows me will know that uh, I take a lot of photos of aircraft and if you're at an air show and they're whizzing past very close at 400 miles an hour, <laughs> you pull back that lens and you give yourself a bit of room so that you can actually get the entire thing in the frame. And... Rule of thirds goes out the window because it's the rule of capturing, you know, the nose, the tail, and, and both wings, and R- then you can go back. Focus, and, I think, kicks in there. Yeah. Well, you you can usually uh, deal with that with uh, various camera settings and and a good bit of panning, but you know, sometimes I've got some great photos from way back when, which would be absolutely brilliant if the rest of the aircraft was in the shot. So, <laughs> what I've what I've learned is to you know when I'm controlling the zoom there is just all right, zoom in, that's how I want it, and then pull back a bit. Because I, I'm not that accurate with uh, the really fast stuff. And now, I don't shoot planes, I shoot trains, uh, but very much the same applies. Now, depending on the, the vintage of your camera, you may have another consideration there, is that I, I spent a long time with an Icon D40, which is, it's an SLR, but only just. And it only had one good autofocus point, that was the center focus point. And it had two other focus points over to the edges, but they weren't nearly as accurate. So if you wanted a sharp shot, you used the center focus point, which immediately went and you had the boring, the trains in the middle of the photo composition. But if you do it wide enough, that's really easy to fix. I have a question for you. I followed your your work over the years, and uh, at one point you were very, very fond of the square format. Uh, I don't know if you're still... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, right. when, you, when you took shots that way, uh, did you take your shots with the idea that they were going to be cropped into a square format? Or did you just, when you were in post-processing, uh, think that maybe this one's going to look better square? 50-50. Uh, some of them were planned and some of them were just, ooh, I like that. Uh, and in fact, I'd say it was probably the ooh, well, you know, the surprise ones were first and then I started to think that way. Uh, and then I went, I, comp- I haven't done that in ages, actually. I've completely forgotten about that thing I used to like. It's funny how that changes. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think some of them were deliberate and some of them were just happy coincidences. Okay, thanks. 
And I yeah, have another I, question. Yeah, please. So, <laughs> not for whoever wants to answer, because we're talking about the idea of uh, uh, creating the composition in camera and whether we should be averse to cropping or not. And I guess a question I have is: Isn't there also a tendency to want to sort of? Uh, it's better to be. It's better to have too much image than too little image, because aren't on most of our cameras the viewfinder is not actually showing a hundred percent. Right, so if we if if we were really 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 precise in the viewfinder, we might not actually be getting the composition that we think we're getting. There's going to be a little extra or a little less or something, right? Is that I, I somebody somebody help me out there? I am ninety nine percent sure that it's something like ninety seven ninety eight percent of your frame is what you see in the viewfinder, and that's only if you like lean over to the left and lean over to the right. If you're just looking straight up the middle, you are missing pieces. Yeah. Yeah, which means I'm, I'm you have, at, which means you're getting more image or less image. What, what, you'll capture the, more than the, you see. I, right. Okay. Which is I'm, good. I'm if looking you're it up, around. Just imagine. Yeah. 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 I'm so looking you're going to upgrading my camera, than... and one of the advances is that the viewfinder increases from ninety two and a half to ninety five, or ninety five to ninety seven, or something like that. So it's it's well up there to start with, and and one of the the new features is that it's even more coverage, but yeah, uh, it's if you're lining up things so that you've got, um, you know, every letter on a sign coming in from the side of the shot, then you you might find that you've actually got the whole edge of the sign rather than just you know the edge of the letter. Or if you're trying to be fine like that, then I think it is uh, folly to do it in the in the camera. And in fact, just give yourself a bit more and say, right, when I get home, I'm going to cut it there. Yeah, I mean, the amount of megapixels, even in something like an iPhone, compared to what you need. For even an A4 print, I mean, you have plenty of spare. You know, don't be too precious about the pixels, is what I'd say. I can't remember who it is. Someone had the catchphrase: "Pixels were made to be punished." And I certainly approve. <laughs> I think that might be Scott Bourne, one of your favorites. <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember: was it Scott Bourne or Alex Lindsay? But it's one of oh, those I, guys, anyway. I think I've I also agree. I think I've also heard uh, Frederick Van say that on on this week in photo. But. Actually, it might be it might be Frederick. Yeah. Anyway, either way, it's I think it's a true statement, and I completely agree. Um, something that I have here in my notes that I think I definitely want to touch on is a very, very easy way to have your photographs catch people's eye is to do the very simple act of not shooting from the level of your face. So we're all about the same height, somewhere between four foot and six foot probably, which means that if we always hold our cameras to our eye while we're standing up, we're all seeing the world from that level that our eyes are at. But if you take the simple act of getting down low, perhaps to extreme by, you know, putting your camera right on the ground, or you don't have to go quite that extreme, or climbing up on something and looking down a little, it changes things really quite a lot. And I think that sort of makes photos that people kind of stop and look at because they're not quite what you're used to seeing. Excellent point. Um, I I went with a good friend of yours to do some shooting about uh, three weeks ago, Steve Stanger, Hmm. And we went to uh, an auto show and we were shooting some uh, vintage um, British um, sports cars and uh, roadsters. And uh, he he suggested I take that tact. And I was very, very happy with the results getting close to the ground and shooting up at the cars. But uh, um, my my legs aren't quite ready for that. And I paid the price (laughs) the next day. But uh, the the result was rather satisfactory, I thought. And I I was going to say, I... I Absolutely agree and think that uh, um, for for me, my work has advanced a lot by doing that, by by 
getting in different positions, uh, looking at things from lower or higher or whatever. Um, Mark, and you, I, you took some shots of tulips that really caught my eye. Where you were below the tulip, looking up yeah. through the tulip at a blue sky, and I thought that was amazing. They were really nice shots. Well, and I think that you know it, it's and thank you, and I think that that those are really good examples, and 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 I think it's it's an important um, step in composition i uh, our friend allison sheridan often tells me that that it doesn't really matter uh, all of my images are going to be good it doesn't matter because i live in such a beautiful part of the country and i oh, yeah, i really do <laughs> i really want to take issue with allison and try to claim back my talent <laughs> because well, no, you have opportunity but that doesn't opportunity yeah. doesn't turn into good photos well and i think that you have the skill to do it Right, and I think the tulips are a great example. I mean, thousands and thousands of people come to visit the tulip farms every spring in Mount Vernon, and uh, what what makes some images of tulips stand out is, you know, a different perspective or and and shooting low, shooting up through them, getting really close in. Um, most people that go to the tulip farms, you know the you know between stand between five to six feet. You can you look out over the the field and there's just nothing but color. Well, that it's really pretty, um, but if every picture taken is that, nothing's going to stand out. They're all going to be the same. It's going you're going to get bored after a while. So the real challenge for me being there is finding something new to shoot and changing position, getting in a different angle um, is really a key to coming up with something that's interesting. And I think that's the same in a lot of the stuff that I shoot is trying to get it at an angle that's interesting because if everything looks like what we see with our eyes when we're just standing there looking at a mountain range or a lake or whatever, yeah, it's pretty, but it doesn't get your attention. But if you change the angle, come from a place that you don't normally see it as a human being just walking up to the site, then the image becomes really interesting and you stop and you look at it. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, especially something like those tulip farms, they are a tourist attraction. And where there are tourists, there are cameras. Where there are cameras, there are photos. So that's a place that naturally is more photographed than your average place. So for you to take a photo that stands out, you have to do something every other tourist isn't doing. Right. Exactly. The photo, the photo of Marks that I think really shows off um, the difference that that can make, though, is the one with the shells in the foreground, oh, yeah. which wouldn't wouldn't even have been in the photo if you just stood at that shoreline and taken and taken the shot, which would have been a beautiful shot of that scenery. But the shells made up like half the picture and gave it a completely different perspective that looked really, really cool. Because that's a detail that would normally be lost at human eye height. Yeah. You'd be standing and, on them. Yeah. It, 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 well, in that in particular image, the uh, camera is literally in the bed of shells. It's yeah. it's right into it. There's we don't want this to turn into a tech show, but there's also a tech a, a, a tech angle to that. That was my uh, one of my very first shots. It was actually a test shot uh, after I unboxed my new 1020. Uh, lens. So <laughs> I was out looking for things to shoot and testing to see what it could do. And that was one of the test shots by putting the camera and the lens right into the into the uh, shells. Instead of from a standing position shooting that, uh, even with a wide angle lens, you know, to get it all in, instead I put the camera right down on the ground into the shells and got a really interesting perspective. 
That's the same wide angle lens I'm in love with, isn't it? The, the ten. It is. It, yeah. exactly the same lens. Yeah. Well, I've except so yours. Yours is Nikon. Yeah. Yeah, but again, it's the same lens, but just a different bottom. Right. <laughs> to, to go into different cameras. Um, I have come home regularly covered in muck because I found an interesting wildflower, and even though my camera has an articulated screen. You can't work as well as you can if you're looking through the viewfinder with all of your focus points and stuff. So I will lie flat in the muck. I don't care. I've almost got cycled over once, which wasn't very nice. <laughs> but, you know. And it makes such a difference to, to get down and get... Well, usually you get dirty, frankly. But I think it's worth it. Um, Another aspect of this, too, uh, is what Kenny alluded to with his, his poor old legs not being able to cope with crouching down or lying on the ground or, in your case, getting mucky, but... Uh, this assumes that your subject um, is nearby. In my case, with, with the aircraft, I've, a couple of times recently around my local airport, I've looked for different angles. Now, uh, one occasion, instead of being you know within the, the maybe 500 metres of the airport boundary, I actually went up a, a hill probably about uh, two kilometres away, um, put a decent zoom on the front and just took some long-distance shots where you get half the airport in the background which was quite an interesting take. And there's also a hill that's a bit closer where you end up actually being above the aircraft as they approach the, the runway. And you can actually, I think you commented, Bart, on one yeah. where the background of the whole shot was sea. Yeah, it's, So there's it's, an airliner with nothing but sea behind it. And you also have ones where you have airliners coming in and there's an out of focus but nonetheless recognisable like suburban area be, behind the plane because you're higher up looking down. Yeah. I think that's actually again. It makes your it makes those shots stand out because you were at an unusual vantage point. Yeah, and I mean the the most obvious one uh, for aircraft at an airport is to get yourself under the approach path, especially with a, a nice and close with a wide angle. I'd love to get a GoPro buried into the tarmac someday, <laughs> just leave <laughs> it running as they come in and run over it. But I don't think I'll be allowed to do that somehow. How about a GoPro in the middle of a railroad track and get one of your railroad shots as the train goes over it? I have considered it, but I'm not sure if the GoPro is heavy enough not to get sucked along. (laughs) And I'm not quite prepared to sacrifice a GoPro. (laughs) Yeah. It may happen. If Irish Red are listening, I'm never going to do this ever. Um, it, it might happen if I get a second GoPro, uh, maybe a nice new three or four or something, whenever the four comes out. Is there, a way, have, is there a way of anchoring it down? I was going to say, did the GoPro not have a railway tie mount? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have a mount for almost everything, that is true, but they don't have... I mean, Ireland, of course, has different width of railway tracks to the rest of the world, so we'd have to have a special one. But anyway. Of course. Um Something I want to transition us into. So one of the aspects of composition is obviously, you know, how you how things are arranged in the frame, sort of, you know, top, bottom, left, right, which we've talked about with our cropping and our rule of thirds. Another aspect of composition is where you stand and therefore what angle you're looking at things. But if you'd excuse the put an angle on composition, I always think it's important to bear in mind is that the whole thing with photography is that you are taking a three dimensional real world and collapsing it into two dimensions. And you need to think about that, because otherwise the result is unpleasing. And I think the most obvious way you get this is if you go on holiday somewhere pretty, you take a snapshot, you get home, and everyone goes ho-hum. Because it just it hasn't captured the feeling of it. And it's probably because you haven't, you haven't put some sort of tactic in place to give a feeling of three-dimensionality, even though your photo is two-dimensional. 
And I just wonder if anyone on the panel wants to throw some ideas about how you can preserve the three-dimensional feeling in our 2D product. I actually had a um, very particular shot recently. Again, while I was walking to the office in the morning, uh, coming in from the the waterfront to the city, and I sort of looked up and realized that I had aspects of the waterfront, the um, uh, local town hall and, and you know civic buildings, and then city skyscrapers behind, and then the hills behind that. So I thought, well, you know, there's so many layers of this is Wellington, you know, in a nutshell in this shot. So uh, I lined up the shot and, and took it. And later on when I was processing it at home, I was looking at it and thinking, I can see all the pieces, but it's just a, a scattergun of things in the shot and you don't get this the, the layered depth. And I spent probably maybe an hour on that photo trying to figure out what would actually make it work and turn it from you know, clearly a snapshot into something that showed the depth. And the only thing that worked was was one of your favorite pieces of software, Bart, which is Topaz Adjust. And I just, I just went through all the presets for starters just to see what would, you know, make something pop. And in the end, what actually made it work was very careful uh, adjustment of the colors, things like darkening the sky so that it, it didn't sort of, you know, fill in the gaps between all the different components punching out I think one of the buildings in the background had a sort of a, a salmon colour and that needed changing and then finally uh, what really made it pop was a vignette on there just to sort of give it a I don't know what it was but I had to do a lot of playing to get this thing from very very two dimensional shot of a of a very very deep scene and I'm still not 100% pleased with it but it's way better than it uh, originally came out of the camera this is the dusk shot of the waterfront that's fairly recent on your stream, isn't it? Uh, no, it's looking into the city from the oh, waterfront, okay, so you, you can see a bit of the lagoon in front. Because you have a lovely one taken on, on a waterfront in dusk that I always really like. Oh, of the um, boating club. Mm. Yeah, that, I could take that probably once a month easily. <laughs> Why don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I should. I should actually spend some time trying to get the composition just right. Um, I guess uh, actually, can, or um, Mark, you do a lot of landscape. Yes. How do you deal with the fact that your your subject really needs a sense of depth to feel real, but the camera won't give you that for free? This is one of those things that you know to tell Alison about. I think you know this is where the skill comes out. How, how do you capture that sense of depth? Now I'm gonna. Now I'm gonna step back and tell you that I learned it accidentally, but it was through you, Bart. Um, I had an image that, uh, and, and it's one of the tips that you gave me years ago uh, that has that I've carried with me all along. And it, it, there was an image that I took um, at the water side. It was a, there's kind of a channel in the uh, vacation area that we go to. And for me, for the taking the picture, I was looking at uh, the trees and water in the distance as being that was my subject. It was really beautiful and I wanted to take it. So I took the shot and I don't remember how you and I conversed about it, but I, I think I may have posted on, on Flickr or something and asked for some assistance. And But the thing that was the problem for me was at the bottom of the image, there was the edge of the, you could see the edge of uh, the water. You could see where I was standing to take the picture. And I was trying to figure out a way of dealing with that. And your advice basically was, don't deal with it. You need to have it there. You need to have that 
foreground and something for the viewer to sort of stand on and and give the depth and give the three dimensions and and I think for me the answer to your question of you know how do you give that depth uh, most often the thing that I'm going to turn to is to try to keep something in the foreground, whether it's maybe a, a tree or a plant or the shore or whatever, that have at least a little bit of foreground right where I'm at to give depth then to the lake or the trees or the hills off in the distance so that you get that, imp- get that sense of three dimensions. And especially when you're dealing with landscapes where the mid-ground and the background are so far away... You can probably walk like 100 meters left or right and keep your same background, but that gives you so many options for foregrounds to play with. Exactly. And then, like I say, one of the most common trick is to maybe get right up next to a tree or have a, have a, you know, have a little branch or something there. And I think, I think a lot of people's instinct is to get away from all that. Oh, I, I can't have anything around me. I need to have a big open space so I can, so I can get the space in front of me. And, and I'm finding, no, that's counterintuitive. You really should look for something close to sort of infringe into the frame so that you get that sense of depth. My sort of internal mnemonic is if I don't see three layers, I need to find another one. And usually that's foreground, midground, background, or it can be foreground, midground sky. If you have like you know fluffy white clouds, they'll do as a layer all by themselves. Right. But if, if I don't see three layers, I'm thinking to myself, this isn't going to work as a landscape shot. Uh, and I'd like yeah, to. Sorry, I'm sorry. No, I was about to ask the question with the layers because I was thinking of that just as you said it. Uh, how much do you use depth of field to uh, to play around that way? Uh, well, to be honest, because. I don't use it very much because in landscapes it's almost impossible to do. But this, is, I think, is going to come into the kind of photos you take because you use depth of field a lot. <laughs> well, you do. It, yeah, it's true. <laughs> Probably too much. But I, I find that it, it, you know, it gives you some varied looks that are an awful lot of fun to play with. Well, like, I mean, for, for yourself, you do a lot of things in parks, which is, I guess, little islands of nature in a city landscape. And... If you're trying to focus someone's attention on a pretty flower, if they can see the whole way into the distance of the trash can and the people doing whatever, they're not going to be looking at your flower. So one of the reasons I think the shallow depth of field works so well for you is that you're using it to subtract away distractions. And I cheat. I I use lens effect a lot. (laughs) But is that cheating, though? Or is that just using a tool to achieve the desired end? I like to think of it that way. <laughs> I mean, you, you but, could go out and spend a whole lot of money on a really good lens to give you that shallow depth of field, or you could spend a little bit of money on software. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, I, I find that, again, we're not, this isn't a tech program, but uh, there are tools out there that can give you that desired effect that are sometimes just impossible to do with the camera. I, I mean, I'm not a purist. Um, I, I sort of feel that it's the art of photography and that, Everything is a tool, and any tool is perfectly viable. What matters is, does the picture that comes out at the end make people happy? So it's the end yeah. product. It's, it's, not the, it's the end, not the means. Exactly. So if you, there might be like 10 different paths to the same end, some of which are hardware, some of which are software, some of which are a bit of both. But ultimately, when, someone, when, when a random stranger walks up to your photo, they never ask you, oh, what lens did you use? They look at the picture and tell you, I like it, I hate it, it's okay, whatever. I mean, it's only the picture that matters. If they can tell that you Photoshopped, that 
that's a problem. Not because you photoshopped it, but because they can well, tell. And and the other thing, Bart, and you, you said it at the beginning, it, the idea of it doesn't matter what kind of camera you're using or whether it's an iPhone or whatever. I mean, Kenny's talking about changing the depth of field and whether or not you do that with a particular lens or you do it in software. But, I mean... It, I mean, I understand I'm mis- maybe misusing the the term depth of field, but I mean, it, a lot of it has to do with how you set up the shot too. I mean, yeah. I, it, you, you let's say you're using an iPhone, so you have no control over the depth of field, as as we know that you know changing the f-stop or whatever. But you know, depending on the subject or where you set it or how close you get the camera or the angle that you do the uh, the the iPhone. Um, on the subject, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the bazillion food shots out there. Okay, hmm. if if you're just straight on over the top of it, it's very flat, and and you don't get any of that dimension. But if you change the angle a little bit, or you put you change the lighting or whatever, it's, I mean, technically you're not changing the depth of field, I guess, but you are giving the image depth just by doing that. And again, it's not. Doesn't matter whether it's an iPhone or a DSLR with a fancy lens and changing the f-stop or whatever. Can we coin a new term as depth of composition? Yeah, yeah, our feeling. Yeah, depth of feel. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but actually, the, the the light thing there is an interesting point because if you shoot, I mean, a good example of this is, believe it or not, the moon. Uh, the moon is kind of flat, but it actually isn't flat. It's got lots of mountains and things. You go out at full moon and you take a photograph of the moon, it looks flat as a pancake. You go out at half moon when the sun is hitting the moon exactly from the side, and you have all of these shadows that have come up. And when you look at that moon through a big zoom or through a telescope, it looks really three-dimensional. And the only thing that's changed is that one way there's no shadows at all, and so it looks flat as a pancake. The other way there are big shadows, so it looks really, you know, bubbly and, you know, textured. And that goes for your food, I think, just as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, yep. you can imagine a, a plate of scrambled eggs straight down on top is just going to look like a blob of yellow. But if you can get the angle right with the light, you're going to get all sorts of texture. Yeah, and that even works big scale. Like you know, the blobs can be trees. If you're standing out in a big landscape and it's lit from straight behind you versus it's lit from ninety degrees to you, it's going to look like a completely different landscape. Um, something else now that occurs to me to get depth into a shot, and the reason it probably occurs to me is because I like taking pictures of things that move along parallel metal strips. Um, <laughs> lines converging together make our human eyes think that there's depth there like nothing else does. If you can find things to converge, your eye will immediately sense depth, even if you have very few layers and you have nothing more fancy going on, just converging lines, and they don't even have to be straight. You can have like a windy path, but as long as the two edges of the path are coming closer together, the further they go into your shot, the human brain will just insert depth boom, for free. So if you're in a, in a park or on a road or anywhere, if you can find a path or railway lines or a canal or a river, that can give you your depth without very much effort, which I guess is something to look out for. Or shooting up at a building. Yeah, that again will give you the, that'll give you a sense of perspective, and yeah, exactly because they're coming together. 
or and if, in fact that goes back to that um, where you position the camera. Hmm. Yeah, you know, a building has has a bunch of parallel lines that just look kind of parallel unless you get real close and then you basically exaggerate that perspective uh, to the extreme. But there's an in-between ground where you can give it enough perspective to make it look interesting and, and get those converging lines without making it look crazy. <laughs> yes, yeah. You can go mad, of course. You can have great fun when you go mad. Oh, of course. There was one shot I tried. I didn't like it in the end because it just... it. I don't know what was wrong with it, but there was a, a jetty sticking out into the water and I basically put the camera at the, the deck level of the jetty and took it as wide as I could. So I had the railings coming in from the top and I had the piers coming in from the bottom. Unfortunately, the whole thing didn't work because I think the left whole, the whole left side of the photograph was of the sea and the whole right side of the photograph was of the jetty. So it just didn't balance out. But boy, did it have uh, converging lines. So you need to find the jetty pointing straight out to sea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, and, and that's that's actually another angle of um, composition that we've we've kind of touched on here is backgrounds. You know, if, if you're taking landscape shots, then the background is kind of the shot. Uh, if you're taking architecture shots, then the background probably doesn't matter. But I had a shot I was trying to take recently um, around that same area I was talking about before in the, the Civic Centre in Wellington, and there's sort of um, brownish um, stone uh, block walls and there's beautiful uh, water features cascading over them and there was a bunch of pigeons sitting in the water just at the top of where it was going over a ledge and it looked quite neat but in the background was the central police headquarters which looks like a military bunker it's dull and dirty grey concrete and no position that I could get myself in that looked halfway decent for the pigeons in the foreground could get rid of this ugly grey in the background. Um, now, you know, even if I shortened the depth of field, which was going to be challenging considering the angle I was at on the pigeons, it, it still would have had this, this muddy grey in the background. So in the end, I, I took some shots where I tried to cut out as much of the grey as I could. But then the composition was just, I don't know, it just wasn't uh, what I wanted. So I, I think there have been quite a number of shots over the years where I've thought, oh, you know, that... that thing looks interesting i'll see if i can take a photo of it and then spent so long trying to find a background that doesn't suck and in the end given up because there is no half decent background and admittedly i suppose many years ago when i wasn't uh, as familiar with the depth of field i I probably could have made some out of some of those shots but it's you know i think a lot of the snapshots that you find that you call snapshots uh, are also because of that you know here's, here's a picture of an orange hanging from a tree which is really neat but um there's like a park over the back there and there's uh, four people riding a, a, a four-wheeled bicycle there and there's a guy. What's that guy doing on the grass over there? And you lose, you lose track of the fact that there's an orange hanging off a tree in the foreground. Are we slightly – we're back towards uh, Kenny's point here, I think, about, well, why don't you just do that in post then? You couldn't get it blurred out in real life. Why not blur it out when you get home? I, I guess that's beyond what I've tried so far. The tool. Um, actually, something we should probably mention, as well as there being a problem of trying to reinsert three-dimensionality into our 2D pictures, nature also has a way of sneaking up on you, because our eyes are three-dimensional. And so we have a sense of depth. As soon as you bring the camera into the equation, that goes away. So although while you're standing there, your grandpa may not look like there's a stop sign sprouting out of his ear, <laughs> when you take the photo, that's what it will look like, because you will have lost the sense of depth. 
And so I believe the technical term is mergers. Beware, 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 beware that you don't want things sprouting out of your subject. And I think for me, it's the the simpler way for me to to think about it. And it goes back to what Alistair was saying, but what you're saying now, Bart, is that the the difference between a snapshot and a really interesting image, an interesting image tells a story. And when you're looking at your background, when you're looking at the guy laying on the grass or you know where the tree sprouts out of grandpa's head or whatever you know ask yourself does the background uh you know tell part of the story if it's not part of the story then get it out of there i am trying this is deeply philosophical now but i'm trying to remember who it was who explained that that with painting you start with an empty canvas and you add in everything you want with photography you start with the universe and you cut out everything you don't want and a lot of the times a good composition is actually about what you left out or what you cut out or what you made to great efforts to remove. Because anything that's in your photo that isn't part of your story is a distraction. And everything that's a distraction stops people noticing the right thing. And so if you imagine your hypothetical orange, and if you use a nice shallow depth of field on that orange, then the human eye is going to go straight for the thing that's in focus, straight for the thing that's sharp, and it's going to go straight for the orange. And everyone's going to say... That's a photo of an orange. If you don't do that, people aren't sure if it's a photo of a bicycle in the distance or an orange. Which, and, and, and I think maybe the uh, Alistair talking about, you know, can I change the depth of field? Can I blur it out? I think the other, other way you can solve this problem and you do it in camera, it, again, it's a composition thing. Get closer. Fill the frame up. <laughs> Fill yeah. the frame up with the subject that you're trying to get. Get closer, and then now you have a lot less background to worry about, and you've totally simplified down to the one thing you want to see. If you're trying to take a picture of the orange in the tree, but you're getting a whole bunch of park and people in the park and whatever, uh, move in on the orange and have the orange just totally fill up the frame, and, and now you don't have a background to worry about. I think that's great advice, Mark, but that could be a little challenging for the person who shoots with prime lenses, don't you think? You do with your feet then, I guess. <laughs> you get pecked by the pigeons. <laughs> oh, they fly away. That's basically, they fly away is what's going to happen. Okay, it's not a, uni- not a universal solution. It's just a tip. <laughs> no, no, it's a good one. I think, was it yourself, Mark, I think mentioned that we think of controlling depth of field by changing the F number, which is true right. because low F number makes the depth of field smaller. High F number makes the depth of field deeper. But that's only one of many things that affect the depth of field. Now, some of them you just can't control. The bigger your physical sensor, the smaller your depth of field, which is why with a cell phone, it's really hard to get a shallow depth of field because the sensor is bloody tiny. Whereas with a full-frame, really expensive DSLR, your sensor is the size of a sheet of 35-millimeter film, which is a lot bigger than the tiny sensor in an iPhone. And so without much effort, like at F4, you can get these beautiful, smooth backgrounds on a full-frame sensor. You know, so your camera is going to determine how hard it is, which you can't change. But what you can change is how close you are to something, because the closer you get to where your camera is focused, the shallower your depth of field gets. And the other thing you can change is your zoom. Well, you can possibly change is your zoom. The more you're zoomed in, so the more your millimeters are more than 50, the more you're compressing the depth of field, i.e. making it smaller. And the exact opposite happens with a wide-angle lens. You're actually stretching your depth of field and making it bigger. So if your millimeters are below 50, you're making it artificially big. And if they're above 50, you're making it artificially small. 
So you could stand a long way back from your pigeons with a 300 millimeter zoom and you'd collapse that depth of field down to inches. Or you could take a cell phone camera and get two millimeters away from its beak and you'd collapse it down to inches. It's a really interesting exercise to get one of those um, depth of field calculators. I mean, there's, there's websites that do it. I've got a, an iPhone app. And, and just start plugging in the numbers because I worked out um, one of my favorite spots out at the local airport. I started thinking, you know, does the aperture actually matter in this scenario? So I used Google Maps and figured out how far from the runway centerline I was. Mm-hmm. And then what's the biggest aircraft that comes in? What's its wingspan? So I worked out, you know, the required depth of field from that spot. Mm-hmm. And the answer was, uh, it doesn't matter squat, what aperture I set, it's all going to be in focus. So I can set the aperture for light. Um, you know, if it's a bright day, I can stop it down a bit. If it's if it's a bit dull, I can open it up. And it doesn't matter one little bit um, that you know anything from a from a small um, bird on the runway to a seven three seven is all going to be in focus. Whereas a lot of things, something I do a lot is take pictures of butterflies. And although butterflies are just inches across compared to your giant big airplane, I'm using the same big stonking zoom lens. And for me, that means that my depth of field collapses to millimeters. Yeah. Just because of how close I'm getting. I'm amazed at those pictures you take of butterflies. I mean, I think you told me at one point you were using a a 300 millimeter lens, and I I thought it was done with a macro. It was uh, marvelous. Well, the thing is, wild insects don't like people. (laughs) So I could get a macro lens and get up really close, but there'd be nothing there for me to take a picture of because it'd have scarpered. So a friend of mine said, yeah, 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 don't worry about a macro lens. Stand back, zoom in. And it works, and it has that same beautiful depth of field effect that you would get as well. And yeah, so they're taking, most of them are taking with a 200 millimeter, and then recently I bought a 250, so now they're 50 millimeters more oomph. Uh, and yeah, I just, so I, I'm standing back about three feet from the butterfly with a big zoom lens to get those macro shots. In do, you, do you need a tripod to do that? I don't, assuming it's bright enough. That I can shoot yeah. at about one one thousandth. That's okay. the downside with with using the zoom technique, because you do need a lot of light, or a steady hand. Maybe not a, not too much coffee. It's probably wise. <laughs> Guys, this has been really fun. Um, I'd like to keep these podcasts sort of not too long and rambling. So I think we might just end with if if you can give everyone one piece of advice. I don't want to spring in this on you, but sorry. Um, who'd like to go first? With the easiest job, I'll go first. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking it before, and, and just the, the moment didn't come up to say it. The biggest thing that I find I have to fight as a photographer to get my composition right is my brain, because I will look through that viewfinder and I will see the object that I'm that I'm you know that I'm paying attention to, and what I need to do is to stop being a human and actually look at the pattern of light that's being projected on my eye and actually consider everything in it. So it's a case of you know, looking at your grandfather, as you said before. Stop looking at your grandfather and start looking at everything else except him and see how it interacts with, with what you're actually taking the photo of. And that, for me, uh, has been the cause of, of the most um, really disappointing shots is that I've seen something that looks really cool and I've completely ignored the background and had the stop sign or the tree sticking out of the head. So just be more conscious. Yeah, look at the picture, not at what your subject is. Really good way to summarize that. I like that. Who wants to? I'll go next. Oh, I, for me, I think that um, I haven't been shooting a long time, but I listen to 
lots of people I read a lot, and even even today and just this hour we've covered a, you know the, a whole slew of composition things, and I think that you can get overwhelmed if during every while you're trying to take every image or while you're trying to learn you you let all of this information flood into what you're trying to do. And I think for me, the, the best way for me to have improved my work is to take one tip. Let's say I'm going to work on leading lines today and just do that. Shoot a lot, concentrate on that one thing. Don't worry about all the other stuff and concentrate on getting better at that. So don't get overwhelmed with every aspect of composition or every aspect of photography. Practice Tell yourself you're going to work on one, concentrate on that, spend a lot of time on that, get better, then it becomes second nature, then move on to the next thing. So basically build up your tool belt of things you understand by doing one. One at a time, absolutely. Cool. Kenny, do you want to jump in with some words of wisdom? <laughs> well, I would say uh, earlier in the podcast, I kind of expressed some disdain for rules because I found that rules were limiting for me. Uh, you know, I, I was mechanical and my images looked mechanical to me. They they all had the subject in the center like you talked about earlier. And uh, why do that? I mean, it doesn't cost very much to take a whole bunch of shots as, as opposed to taking one. And I, I force myself to kind of think about how many different ways could I shoot this subject and, and look for uh, a different means of expression, if you will. So uh, I would say take lots of images. Uh, you know, if, you're, if you, you have a picture of a cow standing near a barn, there, there's got to be 10 ways to shoot it. And uh, one of those ways is going to be the best. And you're never going to know until you look at them all. So I, I would say take lots of images. Cool. And given that we now mostly shoot digital... That's become a cheap proposition, whereas in the past, when you only had your 32 shots and then you had to go pay someone money, that was perhaps a more um, costly way of approaching things. But yeah, I think that's a really good idea. You know, try it, try it a different way, try it a different way, try it a different way, and just keep going until you're bored or you've done everything you can think. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I think what I, what I just want to end on is the idea that most of these quote-unquote rules, they actually have like an unsaid subtext. So the rule of thirds, what's actually not said is, the rule of thirds is a good way to get a harmonious composition. And so if what you're trying to do is create a sense of tension, what you actually need to do is invert the rule of thirds. So you actually need to say, okay, the rule of thirds is going to give me a harmonious, peaceful composition that humans tend to like. I want to make something uncomfortable. I want to make something edgy. I'm going to intentionally break it. Or the other classic one is, if you want a harmonious composition, if something is moving, you give it room to move into... And if someone is looking, you give them room to look into. And looking also counts for flowers for some reason. I think our brains mentally put a face on them or something. But if you want to do the opposite, if you want to make tension, put a car driving right out of the edge of the frame. You will have a shot with tension. So the rule, everyone says, give your subjects room to look into. But what they're not saying is to make a harmonious composition. So as long as you always remember that these rules have a to do X, Y, or Z then you'll know how to break them to really good effect. Because like we said, they're not rules, they're guidelines, and they're just there to help you. And Sometimes you want to do the exact opposite to get what you want. Well, I guess we should probably finish up there. So before we go, um, 
Does anyone want to do any plugging? I suppose the first thing to say is that all four of us are on Flickr and the links to all four of our Flickrs will be in the show notes. So if people want to, you know, judge our opinions based on our work, I guess, or I don't know how you put that politely, um, but you can see what you can decide for yourself whether we know what we're talking about by looking at our work. Um, Mark, I think you do you want to plug your fantastic site where you sell your beautiful photos? Yeah, uh, TwinLakesImages.com. Yeah, I have all of my images up there or the ones that I really want to show off. I also post up there uh, all the events, uh, places where I'm showing my work, things like that. I also have done a little bit of blogging talent. So, for instance, the conversation we had about shooting tulips, I have a whole blog post on shooting in areas where there's a million other people shooting at the same time. So, TwinLakesImages.com. Um, Alistair, do you want to plug anything in particular? Uh, just if anybody's interested in the aviation side of my photography, particularly, there is a blog that goes with um, that aspect of them of the Flickr photos, and that's at zkarj.co.nz. Cool, or NZ for our Americans. Well, in which case, zkarj at the front. Oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny, do you want to plug anything? Uh, no, but I'd just like to invite anyone who wants to look at my stuff uh, on Flickr at uh, KennyL2007 or on SmugMug at KennyL98. And uh, feel free to offer some criticism. Uh, this is how we get better. Very good point. I've been your host, Bart Bouchatz. You can find me at bartb.ie, where I also have a blog and links to stuff. And if anyone wants to contact the show, you'll find the show on Twitter at, uh, at LTPod, which stands for Let's Talk Podcasts. You can also email the show if you think we've all been talking rubbish or that you want to add your own uh, pearls of wisdom at photography at lets-talk.ie. I've set up a Flickr group for the podcast where we can all share our work. Now, I've set up the Flickr group so you can only post one photo a day, which is a subtle hint that what I'd like people to do is share the cream of the crop rather than flooding the group with everything you shoot. So if you choose carefully, then you're going to get much more comments on your photos because... You know, again, you're being selective. So I'm sort of subtly forcing that on people by saying, you're only allowed to post one a day. Um, and also the website is lets-talk.ie. So until next time, happy snapping, I guess. Anyway, enjoy your life with your cameras and talk to you soon. Listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hello, I'm Mike McPeak from Bard on the Plains podcast. Growing up on the plains of South Dakota, I used to listen to my dad tell stories about his life. I never had a chance to record any of these, but I realized that everyone has a story to tell. And that's what I try to do on this podcast tell anecdotes of my own and have other people tell their stories in their words and in their voice. So please listen to Bard on the Plains podcast. It's about stories, mine and yours.